developmental trauma, when it's not resolved, has persistent impediments to neural integration. Every form of regulation, regulating attention, emotion, mood, thought, relationality, self-understanding, and morality. All those forms of regulation always depend on integration in the brain. Welcome to the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin. This is a podcast that explores the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm speaking with writer and educator Dan Siegel. Dan is professor of psychiatry at the UCLA Medical School and founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. He's also the author of a number of books, including The Developing Mind, The Mindful Brain, and he's the founding editor for the Norton Professional Series on Interpersonal Neurobiology. Dan is an educator at heart, and I've always wanted to speak to him about some of the key concepts in his work that I've borrowed and adapted in my work around trauma-sensitive mindfulness. In particular, I've been wanting to talk to him about the window of tolerance, which is a model he created that's been highly integrated into contemporary trauma work and holds a lot of relevance when it comes to trauma and meditation. In our conversation, we addressed a number of topics, including the individual and interpersonal practices that Dan believes we need in this particular moment, contemporary definitions of mindfulness and what Dan sees as the three pillars of practice based on research, the relationship between monitoring and modifying in meditation, including how this relates to trauma, and also the importance of integration, both in meditation and in terms of trauma recovery. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a number of months, and I'm really happy to be sharing it with you here. So without further ado, here's Dan Siegel. So I'm here with Dan Siegel. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. David, it's great to be here with you. It's been a minute since I've seen you, and I think it was a couple of years ago, maybe? Yeah, yeah, it probably was here in UCLA. Yeah, I, so there's lots that I'm excited to talk to you about. Um, but also, since I haven't seen you, how are you doing? Uh, how's life been during the pandemic? And uh, Yeah, well, you know, it's been so painful, I mean, in so many ways. And in other ways, there have been many blessings. So it's, um, you know, it's very uh, uh, mixed. Uh, we've had a lot of different family things. Some are really fantastic. Some are painful, some losses. Uh, but overall, you know, my family's doing fine and close friends are doing fine. And I, I, I've tried to use this disorientation, disorganization of the pandemic to see, you know, how collectively we might move ourselves forward in a positive direction without being too much of a, an idealist or an optimist, not seeing the reality of things. So it's been, you know, a very sobering time. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? How are things with you? Yeah, it's been similar. It's been a mix of um, places where there's been, the, the pause has been really helpful. It totally disorganized. I mean, when I met you was a couple years ago at UCLA doing a big presentation in a room of, I don't know, I think it was like three or 400 people all yeah. jammed in. And then the thought of just the massive pivot that happened. And I was supposed to be doing a lot of travel and a lot more teaching and it just all shifted so fundamentally, which ended up being really helpful for some health stuff mm. that I was struggling with, mm. um, just to slow down. And it got me into a different rhythm. It got me into my window, which we'll talk more about. Yeah. Um, and I just am in some 
massive questions about the trauma that so many people and the, the stress that so many systems are under and then what the next couple of years is going to look like. Mm -hmm. um, but how important practice is going to be, has been and will be going forward. So I'm good and I'm hurting. You know, it's just been so sad to hear. I, I haven't been directly impacted. I didn't get COVID, but some close people um, and some real tragedy. So yeah. the whole the whole mix is here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's a time to try to really cultivate gratitude, you know, and, and yeah. also, I, I mean, this is the challenge, I think, in the beautiful work you do about what does it mean about being mindful and at the same time wrestling with um, needing to do things in the world, not just be, you know, present and open, but actually yeah. do things. So it's a, I think it's really called on um, any of us in the field of mental health um, to think deeply about, okay, well, what have we learned over all these, whatever, times of reflection and work to then bring into the world things that might be helpful, ways yeah. of being, ways of doing, you know, we can get into all that. But so it's been really quite almost like a strange um I don't know, like a, a kind of nightmare where all the things you worried about uh, are coming true kind of thing. Like in the, this morning and when I was having breakfast and listening to the news, uh, my whole family's away doing different stuff. And um, so I've been here by myself for like a month and, oh, wow. um, you know, uh, finishing a book. So it's been kind of a good writer solitude. But, you know, so I listened to the news and eating breakfast, but the news was all about the mental health struggles of people, you know, yeah. during this pandemic and everything the reporter was saying so astutely about what's going on, about isolation, about the disconnection we feel, you know, and talking about how important it is for us to maintain our connections with each other so we can maintain our mental well-being. You know, I don't know if we would have had such a, an urgent NPR talk about that. Maybe we would have but certainly, you know, now that we've passed a year in this pandemic, everything we have to offer, I think, from our field, you know, as mental health practitioners to the larger world, not just individual clients, you know, has just become literally a matter of life and death. Yeah. With the yeah. increased suicide and drug use, domestic violence and all the things that are happening. So oh, it's been like, um, you know, a moment of saying, OK, you know, this is the work that's here in front of us and how do we work with the immediacy of the pandemic, but also, you know, thinking about, you know, in many ways there are a number of pandemics we face, racism and social injustice and environmental destruction, just to name two others yeah. that I think in some ways are all kind of related. And um, anyway, so we, we can get into all that. And, you know, well, maybe we could yeah. just to even start there. Like, what do you, I'm curious what you're writing about right now. And, uh, I'm wondering what you see based on the path that you've been on in research, but also your path with mindfulness and meditation. What would you see are the practices that we need right now in this particular moment? Yeah, um, no, it's a really great question. I, um, for the individual, um, I, I think what we we need uh, is kind of this inside-out approach, which. I know your work really emphasizes this way we can bring kind of a, a, a developing of our capacity for 
you know, essentially the three pillars that research has shown, you know, the ability to strengthen your capacity to focus attention, the first pillar, which, you know, a lot of people don't realize that's something they can actually train. Yeah, it's huge. You know, instead we're distracted, especially with all the (laughs) stuff, but you can actually do something about that. So that's kind of amazing. The second pillar, you know, being opening awareness so people can distinguish that, gosh, it's not just what I'm aware of, but the actual experience of this receptive state of presence, this open awareness, you know, they can cultivate that too. And, you know, it's kind of this beautiful miracle on us when people go, whoa, I am not just my thoughts and feelings. You go, yeah, you're, you're actually bigger than that. And they go, yeah. oh my God, that changes everything. Yeah. 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 And, and, so then you go, that's kind of amazing. And then the third pillar that research shows, you know, from, you know, studying ancient contemplative practices is, you know, building kindness. And, you know, um, I remember teaching once with Sharon Salzberg and, uh, you know, she's been such a wonderful guide for the world yeah, into amazing. the ancient practice of loving kindness, right? So yeah. we were teaching together, and it's not my background. You know, I don't have a background as a, you know, <clears throat> a scholar in contemplative practices or even meditation. Um, so I said to Sharon, I said, so, you know, w- what exactly is this loving kindness stuff? You know, I mean, I because she was my first teacher in that whole area years ago. Oh, yeah. So she said, well, it's really an awareness that we're all interconnected. And what we ended up talking about in this this workshop we did together um, was showing, and this is from the interpersonal neurobiology framework that I work in, which is, you know, complementary or, you know, it's consilient with, like when I teach all the time with Jack Kornfield, you know, his training as a Buddhist scholar and this interpersonal neurobiology stuff, which which is just science, basically, they really work together. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so so the working together there for loving kindness is that you can build kind intention, right? So you're you're cultivating the focused attention, the opening of awareness, and the building of kind intention, which, you know, for Sharon is an awareness of interconnectedness. And that's which is this striking finding to come to your initial part of the question what do we offer to people that deep in each of us as individual entities, nodes in a big network of the wholeness of everything, you know, but the body carrying, um, you know, like the universe in a grain of sand, you carry the whole thing inside this bodily form. And so for me, the kindness that Sharon so beautifully teaches about Sharon Salzberg is really tapping into this, um, state of love, a state of realizing the connectedness of everything, and the state of presence. These three things are like a tapestry of a singular, you know, woven fabric of reality. And when people tap into that, they don't have to Mm -hmm. make it happen. They're almost like releasing kindness. Um, So when you cultivate the capacity to release kind intention, open awareness, and focused attention. This is, I think, what people need these days. And, you know, with Alyssa Eppel, um, we, we put together um, uh, specific ways of teaching that within um, the medical world, you know, first responders to COVID, um, with a really exciting response to people from people who, you know, had never thought about meditating or 
cultivating their minds. I mean, when I went through medical training, I mean, not a single word, not a single word, David, was spoken about how can you cultivate your well-being? Nothing. Oh, wow. Wow. And it was as if, you know, your body was just like uh, a transport vehicle for your head, which could let you think about things and remember things or tell someone a terrible diagnosis they would have and you say goodbye. I mean, that's a whole nother thing. But so so for me, you know, the the way I got into the field of mindfulness was kind of by accident. Um, But I'm so thankful for the accident of it because, you know, I think uh, the ancient practices have taught us some very important ways of now in modern science, just showing the wisdom of cultivating, especially these three things, yeah. attention, you know, awareness and intention. And when people do that, you know, they get better in their bodies in terms of immune system function improving, mm-hmm. stress reducing, heart function improving, reducing inflammation even by modifying these non-DNA molecules that sit on the DNA, you know, the epigenetic regulators. And then a fifth way you improve your body is, you know, what Alyssa Eppel and her colleague um, Liz Blackburn have shown, you know, that you you um, optimize this enzyme called telomerase that repairs and maintains the ends of your chromosomes. And in addition to all that, you're actually leading to growth in the brain in a way that could simply be summarized with the word integration. You're, 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 linking differentiated parts so when we speak to these medical professionals you know who never get into this mindfulness mindfulness stuff you know mind what is this all gooey soft stuff give me the real stuff Hmm. you know you can list these six changes that research now in very rigorous peer-reviewed journals um demonstrates that six pillar practice Hmm. produces these six changes so you say this to a medical professional so for your body you want to do duh, 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 and get all these changes in brain structure and function that are the basis of resilience. You can say that in like in about 90 seconds, they go, teach it to me. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't have much yeah. time. They point to their, you know, wristwatch or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. You go, okay, here it is. So, so, you know, I think we're at a place now to say every person, not just first responders, everybody should be given three pillar practice. Yeah. That allows you in whatever way it feels right for you. You know, some people prefer yoga or Tai Chi or whatever, yeah. you know, because there's some amazing studies on on mindfulness in the movement practice. This is from Adele Diamond up in Canada. Uh, you're from Canada originally. I right? am. Yes, yeah. Says, yeah, I, yeah. I know from your accent. My neighbor. From the East Coast or where are you, <laughs> you from? Know, yeah, I grew up in Toronto. I did. Okay, there you go. I get yeah. the Toronto accent. Anyway, so um, so Adele, you know, was able to do this meta-analysis that shows mindfulness is fantastic. But, but the best way to develop your executive functions, which help you regulate all this stuff, you know, is through mindful movement, things like yoga or Tai Chi. And yes. um, yeah. so anyway, so you can say that too. And so this is, I think, everybody... Yeah, just like, you know, there may have been a time when we didn't brush our teeth. Right. Now, not just dentists should brush their teeth. Like, everybody should should brush their teeth. Three-pillar practice should be like brushing your mind. I have a question about the three-pillar practice. Yeah. When I I hear you talk about it... I hear it's it's not a passive practice. Like what you said earlier about this isn't necessarily a time just to observe. This is actually also a time for the capacity for action. And so I'm always curious about this balance between um, our capacity to be aware, to observe, and then also 
to act in accordance or alignment with a value, for example. And I asked this, Sharon actually came on the podcast and I got to ask this of her. So maybe oh, I'll get great. to ask you and see. So um, uh, I, Rick Hansen talks about this, this duality between, or two wings of a bird really, uh, between working with and being with. That with mindfulness and, and meditation practice, we're really cultivating the capacity to be with. And that there will also be times where we're engaging in purposeful practices that you call more working with, that we're, we're nudging our experience in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. And this might be a bridge here into talking about trauma is in my work around trauma, both, both are going to be really important, that there's... Uh, this capacity to be with and to know when, when to work with. So I'm curious in a three pillar practice, if that holds water for you, this idea of the being with working with, how does that fit into the three pillar practice? Yeah, no, I think it's great. And, you know, I love how Rick uh, talks about that stuff. You know, the, the, um, well, first, you know, the, the term three pillar practice, just so uh, just a little teeny bit of background to connect it to the, the two wings. Um, you know, I was in a meeting with mindfulness researchers and, um, I was finishing this book I wrote on, uh, the wheel of awareness of practice, you know, I had developed to how to integrate consciousness. And, um, anyway, so I was hanging out with these, these researchers. So I said, okay, you guys, I've got this diagram. My daughter, Maddie, um, Maddie Siegel's the illustrator for my book. I said, you know, she has this diagram. Let me just check it out with you. So everyone was sitting around and I said, so can we all agree that, you know, the fundamental ingredients of mindfulness training are, you know, building this focused attention and opening awareness and Mm -hmm. building kind intention. So half the people in the room said, absolutely, that's great. (laughs) And half the people said, absolutely not. Amazing. And they had a very passionate but mindful um, (laughs) disagreement and discussion Uh, I won't call it an argument, but it was certainly a very heated uh, debate about it. And and they didn't come to a resolution. They would not come to agreement on yeah. what that word mindfulness meant. Yeah. So I said, okay, okay. So I've got this diagram that had three pillars of mindfulness training. So uh, so one of the people there says, just call it mindsight training, that word you made up, and get a, don't worry about the mindfulness thing. I said, no one knows what that word means, you know. <laughs> and, and so I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do to make it easy on Maddie. I'm going to say it. It's not three-pillar mindfulness practice. Let's call it, and I took off the fullness from her diagram. I said, would you all agree that this is three-pillar mind training? Mm. And there was 100% agreement of every one of the researchers they said, that's a great term, three-pillar mind training. I said, fine, I'm just going to use that. So mm-hmm. we wrote a paper on that, just summarizing all the research, because the research was clear, these three pillars, these three aspects, whether you call it mindfulness or mindfulness plus compassion, the yeah. difference was everyone agreed it was focused attention and open awareness. Some people said, you don't have compassion training right. with mindfulness. Other people said, you do. Anyway, so the, 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 the nice thing about the term is it's very specific. You say to someone, these are the three fundamental ingredients that research shows will produce these six changes of well-being. Mm-hmm. So now you come down to another layer, David, and this is what I think the first time we met at that meeting, um, at the, you know, for me, and this now goes years back, um, starting in this little room I'm in right here back in the, the um, very early 90s, 1990. I was finishing a, uh, a research fellowship with the National Institute of Mental Health. 
Um, I was getting board certified in every way you could as a psychiatrist, child psychiatrist, adolescent psychiatrist, adult psychiatrist. And I had this moment here in this room when I said, oh, my God, I'm, I'm now certified in psychiatry. That's like the caretaker of the mind. Nobody told me what the mind is. Yeah. So this started a journey that basically, you know, you know, I I, I was like shocked that psychiatry didn't bother to say what it was the iatry of what was the psyche. And so ultimately, the mind for me became just an obsession. Like, what does that word mean? What does it mean, you know, to be a mental health professional, all this stuff? So so at the simplest level, we won't get into all the details unless you want to, but the, the simplest level was to look at the mind, you know, as having subjective experience, consciousness, information processing, but a regulatory function that overlaps with, um, in complexity theory, what you would call self-organization. And that regulatory part of the mind, so the mind is multifaceted, but one aspect of it is a regulatory process. So if I said to you, David, do you ride a bicycle? You know how to ride a bike? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're regulating that bicycle. Mm-hmm. So whenever you regulate anything, let's just use the bicycle as an example, you have to monitor and you have to modify. Yes. Right? Yes. Or right. sense and shape or track and transform, whatever letters you like. So so to come to, you know, this notion of, you know, being and doing or, oh, you this know. This is good. So, so you've got to monitor. That is great. With clarity. So mm. you see with depth and detail and focus. And then if you choose, you don't have to. You can just let it be a conduit, like a hose. And the stuff just flows through you. Or you're going to modify it, right? Oh, or, I love that. Right? And so, so the mind has to have those two. But it has to start with the monitoring. If it's not monitoring with clarity, then it can't modify with specificity. And so the, the specificity for me, you know, was the next step is what's a healthy mind. And that came to this whole mathematics of complex systems. But it basically said a healthy mind is a mind that, that can monitor with stability. So it sees with clarity. That's the monitoring part. But then if it chooses, it doesn't have to it's going to modify that flow of energy toward integration. Yes. So it's going to differentiate and link. And then suddenly, for me, because at around that time, I was being asked to be the training director in child and adolescent psychiatry at UCLA. So it was like, okay, I'm going to now teach a whole new curriculum on how to become a mental health professional, whatever your division is in our field, you know, where we have this grounding that this is the mind, here's a definition of the mind, and it wasn't even competing with other definitions because, believe it or not, nobody has a definition. Psychiatry, psychology, no, not even the field of philosophy of mind. In fact, they say, don't define the mind. So, so from 1992 on, there was this offering of a definition of mind that had certain mm, implications scientifically, what it would mean. And that's, I don't know how many years ago that is now, how many years, 20 or is 20. That 20 years ago. So, yeah. or, yeah, or is it thir- tw- 30 years ago? 10, 20. Oh, it is 30, oh my 31. God. <laughs> so basically, with the new Developing Mind book that just came out this year, you know, I had 18 interns working me to see if the implications from the early 90s of this definition of mind held true, and they all held true. It was amazing. Wow. 
So the bottom line is a healthy mind would be a mind that can monitor with clarity. That's the being with, right? Yes. And then modify, or what what did Rick call it? The doing? Working with. Working with. I mean, this is basically coming from that idea, right? Sure. Is you're monitoring and you're modifying so that you're modulating, you know, the energy flow, because you say, well, what is it I'm actually modifying? I'm, it's energy flow. And you're basically not only a conduit of just monitoring something, but you're now a constructor. And if you do that in an integrated way, then you move away from these states of chaos or rigidity, which are, you know, self-organization that's challenged toward a state of harmony, which has these five qualities of faces, flexible, adaptive, coherent, which means resilient over time energized state of vitality and stable which means reliable not rigid Mm -hmm. so the faces flow uh you know i remember reading that literally in 1991 or 92 something right here i'm in this room you know because we're at, at home with the pandemic and i went oh my god this is like the mathematics of health Right, these qualities. Mm-hmm. So I re-come an acronym nut, so I rearranged them into an acronym <laughs> so I can remember it. And then it was like, okay, well, what this means is that if you integrate, if you differentiate on the one hand and link on the other, and you balance those two processes, let's just name that integration because math mm-hmm. doesn't have a name for it. So you balance those two things, differentiation and linkage, then you're going to create this flow. And across a lifetime, that would mean you would sometimes move towards chaos, sometimes move toward rigidity, but ultimately be in the center flow, right, of harmony. Um, Or if you want to just look not across a lifetime, but at a given moment, that's where the idea of the, the, you know, the window of tolerance came in. And that was just a name I made up for, you know, how would you look at the state a person's in in a given moment? Um, probably from my own childhood, seeing certain people in my family would enter these chaotic states or rigid states, and I never understood it. And then when I was a dad, I would also sometimes like flip my lid, you know, and I'd I'd become very chaotic or shut down. I go, wow. And I could bring myself back to this more harmonious state, but nevertheless, I had ruptured a, a connection with my child or my wife or whatever. So I had to really do some deep reflection, like, wow. How can how can sometimes you enter a given state and you bust through this window of tolerance, right? So that's where that notion came up, and and it turns out it's really you know uh, something we can use, especially with trauma, but because unresolved traumatic states, you're more prone to become unintegrated in the moment yes. and enter these states that we can we can talk about. Well, that's actually what I was really excited to talk. We we got yeah. into it a little bit when we met a couple years ago, but I yeah. And one thing I appreciate you just hearing you talk about when you're in the room that you're in, I just realized this as you were talking that one of the reasons I've enjoyed getting to read your work or learning from you is that it's 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 been a really personal, you've been very transparent, I feel like, about your own intellectual discovery, like that it's, it's connected to your life. Yeah. And the window, for me, explained a lot, as you just said, about times that I'll be in more chaos or I'll end up in more rigidity. And as you probably, you know, you know, it's just been mapped so often onto trauma and talking about dysregulation or dysregulated arousal. And so could you talk a little, just you talked earlier about the the linkage of differentiated elements of a system and your idea of of integration and the window. 
I think people can sometimes hear the window and think, oh, the, the goal is to always be in the window and that being in the window means calm. Mm, and no. I'd love, you know, and, and and so I'd love to get to talk to you about, could you, could you unpack a little bit about what it means, the linkage of differentiated elements, and then we'll talk about how that relates to trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, David. That's just so, so great. And, um, I love the way you talk about, uh, this stuff. Um, well, let me, let me start with just, uh, just kind of a confusing uh, thing, you know. For me, when when I was going through training um, as a uh, learning to become a therapist, um, my first patient uh, was someone who had been severely traumatized uh, and had a dissociative disorder. And um, this was, you know, in the early '80s. And um, there was a movement in psychiatry to reduce everything to brain function. Mm -hmm. uh, and it actually was kind of politically incorrect to talk about trauma, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was uh, it, partly because, you know, in the child and adolescent world, um, there were these theories which were wrong, that autism was caused by, you know, parents being, uh, especially moms, acting like refrigerators, totally wrong. Or schizophrenia was a condition caused by mothers giving double binds, which was wrong. You know, um, so in the 40s and 50s and 60s, these were said, and then by accident, you know, certain medical uh, interventions for other things, I think it was like for malaria or something, led to people getting stabilized in their psychotic states, whether it was schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Um, so people said, whoa, you know, this is something unusual or people with obsessive compulsive disorder had been getting a ton of psychoanalysis, but then they just added a chlorine molecule uh, to imipramine, you know, this classic tricyclic antidepressant. And just with the chlorine added, it became clomipramine. You could melt away the OCD symptoms. And what that chlorine did was allow you to hit the serotonin versus other neurotransmitters once you just added the chlorine. Anyway, so people said... Oh, my God, you know, clearly it's all about the brain, 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 you know, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, so for me as a trainee who loves the brain, I mean, my sure. teacher in neuroscience was so inspiring, David Hubel. And, you know, I thought the brain was fantastic. But to reduce the mind to just what the brain was, which, you know, Hippocrates did 2,500 years earlier. And William James reaffirmed it, you know, in 1890. So this was this was confusing. So hmm. I wasn't supposed to be talking about this person who'd been traumatized, that there was something wrong with her brain. Hmm. And even when I ultimately had to hospitalize her, the comments from the attending physicians, you know, I was a student, uh, were, you know, uh, Dan needs to figure out, literally, they write this in the notes, figure out, you know, which is her condition? You know, does she have rapid cycling bipolar disorder because she was cycling in and out of these chaotic states? You know, and um, it was it was really quite something. So to, to try to make a statement, the mind is a regulatory process that's regulating energy flow both inside your body, including its brain, and in your relationships. Yes. Was freaking people out. I mean, mm -hmm. because they said, no, it's all brain, brain, brain. So, so that was the first thing to see that you could have, ultimately, now we would call these kind of oscillations mm -hmm. that recruited in your brain different uh, areas into one, let's just call it a state of mind. But even relationally, because I became an attachment researcher and I was studying communication in very close relationships, parent-child relationships or romances, you could see that two bodies 
could have this oscillating process of recruiting different states in your partner, for example, whether that partner were your kid or your romantic partner. And and so then it was like, okay, this is fine because skull nor skin are barriers for energy to flow, right? So of course you can have oscillating recruitments within an individual's body. Mm. And if they've been traumatized, those recruitments may not be linking differentiated parts. So one of the major assaults of trauma, and, and um, Marty Teicher later would show this at McLean Hospital, Harvard, you know, that the main assault of trauma, developmental trauma, meaning abuse and neglect, is impaired integration in the brain. And we can talk about the areas if you want to, but, but the overall thing to know is that every form of regulation, regulating attention, emotion, mood, thought, relationality, self-understanding, and morality. All of those. And if I didn't have 18 interns working with me to try to show this was not true, <laughs> but it turns out to be true, or at least there's a ton of evidence to support what I'm about to say, all those forms of regulation always, you, we can't find an exception, depend on integration in the brain. Mm. So, so the reason integration in the brain is so important is because it's the basis of regulating all those ways. Now, what we're saying is that what Marty showed, Marty Teicher, was that developmental trauma, when it's not resolved, has persistent impediments to neural integration. Mm -hmm. And what that means from a practical point of view for you, if that's you, or if you're working with a person, you know, whether you're a teacher or a clinician or they're your friend or partner or whatever, is that that makes that person very prone when their brain is not integrated. So unresolved trauma is equal to continued impairments to mostly to linkage in the brain is what it is. The areas get differentiated. They just the linkages are not established. And I could, you know, we could talk about the hippocampus or the prefrontal cortex, the corpus mm -hmm. callosum, or even something called the connectome, the overall differentiated areas and how they're linked. So those are four ways specifically. This isn't just, oh, it's integration, schmintegration. No, it's very specifically Correct. regions of the brain that link differentiated areas together together. And when you don't have the linkage of differentiated areas, then the state of firing of that brain is very prone to chaos or rigidity or both, right? And so then you go, wow, okay. So then a given individual can be relatively harmonious in their functioning. A trigger happens, whether it's relational or in recalling a memory. And if, if their trauma is unre unresolved, and I noticed this even in myself, in my own traumas with my own parenting history, that is when I was a kid being parented, you know, when those were unresolved, my interactions with my wife would become chaotic or rigid or with my kids. I even write about <laughs> this in my parenting books, you know, and I had to really do the inner work of resolving those traumas, or in my case, you know, a very painful and difficult father. When he died, I then could have this clarity of what that relationship had done to me. So I could, I could find a way to find resolution inside of myself. And then the same provocative triggers that before would have set me off into chaos or withdrawing in a rigid kind of, you know, uh, state of not connecting to other people or even myself, you know, would stop happening. And so I, could, I said, whoa, look at that. Here's a, this thing, you know, two years ago, that would have triggered me for sure. 
But now it's like, oh, that's interesting. Whereas my mom says, she's 92 now, but she's given the best definition of mindfulness I've ever heard. Caroline Welsh, who's my wife, who wrote this great book, The Gift of Presence, you know, she and I have both taught my mom to do meditation. And, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, so my mom said to us, she says, oh, I think I figured out what mindfulness is. We go, what is it? She goes, it's things that used to annoy you now amuse you. And I said, oh, my <laughs> God, that's like perfect. That's, that's like great. the most succinct definition. So when you're <laughs> when you have this integrative now propensity because you've resolved trauma, Mm-hmm. The trigger that would have set you off and been very annoying, annoying meaning you go into chaos or rigidity, you know, now it amuses you. So you stay within that, um, you know, that window of tolerance. And this is where I think you and I first met. Um, this was an interesting discussion. A lot of people, because it's very, you know, I think more accessible, say, oh, you know, um, you know the window of tolerance is really about degrees of um, activation, like you're either hyperactivated if you're through the window on the top part mm-hmm. or you're hypo activated and, mm-hmm. and and that overlaps a bit and so it's not that it's wrong it's mm-hmm. just that it's not really what the idea is about it's really more about states of um not degrees of activation like for example it's really more about can i stay integrated so let's say for example you know we just had a sad loss um in our lives Someone died in the family. And uh, I can have very intense experiences of sadness, super aroused in terms of sadness. Sure. But I stay integrated. Right. I'm in the window. So for you to say to me, oh, Dan, you know, your sadness is so intense. You're 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 not really doing very well, are you? Uh, Well, no, I'm actually in it i may feel super sad but i'm in that window mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. if i if i couldn't handle sadness yeah it could be that an intense amount might make me well it could make me rigid sure or chaotic sure. either way so so it doesn't really correspond to hyper or hypo arousal i know my dear friend pat ogden you know would apply it that way or other people too w- would use hyper and hypo arousal as equivalent to what busts you through and it, it can apply but it's more nuanced than that in the sense that you know um e sure if you are if i'm not in a space of integrative re- receptivity i can get chaotic or rigid when my states of arousal are you know in these extremes that's true it's absolutely true but it's 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 different because you know the the rigidity you feel can happen when you are super aroused. Right. Right. And this is where I find that just uh, maybe it's a different way of looking at, but I think it's a more foundational way of thinking about the window. I feel like it, I feel like you're taking it from a two dimensional model to a multidimensional place around States. Yeah. And I, I feel like one thing I love about the window, I mean, I have with, with Pat Ogden, I have definitely, taught it or spoken about the window in that way, the hyper and hypo mm-hmm. arousal in those states. One thing I appreciate it about it is that it is quite intuitive to people and often empowering, I think, where they go, 
right, there are times where I can be present with my sadness and somewhat integrated and other times where it's actually just too much and I'm in chaos or rigidity, I'm disintegrated. Yeah. And people seem to respond in a very, it's an intuitive model. What I wanted to ask you about was also systems, the systems aspect of this model, because I'm thinking of COVID, but one of the things that I loved about the model when I first learned about it is this is that you, if I understand you took it from systems theory in part or complexity uh, no, theory totally from systems theory yeah so that it's a, we're really we could talk about a nervous system but we could also talk about a family system exactly or a healthcare system and or a planetary you know e- ecosystem well this is where yes yeah, sometimes yeah. you'll take it even wider and you yeah. know I I worked with couples for a while um, and whoa I mean that model just times where it would lock down into just the differentiation or complete chaos, but then those beautiful moments of integration exactly. <laughs> that would happen. Yeah, and uh, people could see your smile. Yeah, you, uh, you know, when we work with people or when we're in those relationships, you can feel the difference. You know? It's beautiful. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the harmony that, you yeah. know, from the, of, the, of the choir. So could exactly, you talk, yeah. what do you see now? I'm thinking you, you talked about racial oppression. We talked about the impact of COVID. To me, that's that's pushing. I always have this image of it literally pushing on the systemic window, that it's mm-hmm. it, it would take less and less input to create more dysregulation or disintegration. But I'm wondering if I have that right. I've always just had that image. And, and does that hold water for you? Yeah. Well, it's so interesting, David. You know, it's so... Um... Uh, I, I'm getting kind of tearful now because it's so beautiful what you're saying. There's a... Um... I remember a moment, and this is, it's its a complicated thing, but I'll just, just so I can get it out of my system yeah, with you. Sure. You know, uh, my wife was having a big birthday and she, her ancestors are from Ireland, you know, and so uh, um, I had read a beautiful poet named John O'Donohue um, years, oh, he's ye- amazing. years before, you know, and I, yeah. so I was teaching in Santa Barbara um, at some kind of consciousness thing or something. I don't know what it was, but, on, <laughs> but on the, on the telephone pole near the restaurant where I was having dinner before I was talking, there was this like ad amazingly, like, you know, pasted up to the telephone pole, go study with John O'Donohue. And it was no right way. over Caroline's like birthday. And, you know, and, 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 and so I didn't know, I didn't think she knew him. Um, so anyway, so I called her up and I said, you know, I'm going to send you to Ireland to study with this guy, John O'Donoghue. She goes, well, who's that? And I said, well, you like to travel, just go, you'll see fine. Anyway, they became dear friends during the two weeks in Ireland. And then she insisted I meet him because I had never met him. And anyway, he became this close family friend, uh, you know, before he passed uh, about 12 years ago now. And so I'm thinking about that because in that Santa Barbara gathering, you know, just as a joke at that moment, I was going like, um, you know, let me just give you a feeling for this, um, like, um, you know, thing about what the window of tolerance is and what does it mean to really differentiate and link and the natural emergence from complex systems, you know, to self-organize in this way towards harmony, you know? So, um, and I said as a joke in that Santa Barbara thing, this is after I had already seen the thing on the poll of John, you know, I'm in this room and I said, so, does anyone sing? And I thought like people would just say yes or whatever. And I'd give the example I'd written about in the developing mind about a choir. 
Yeah. But before I knew it, these Californians, and I'm from California, so I can say this, they pop up out of their seats and they come up to the stage. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do, right? I'm going, oh, well, oh, okay, well, let's, all right, let's do this. So I just said, okay, you know, um, like there were a dozen choir singers. They, they weren't from the same choir. They just knew how to sing in a choir. So, so there were a dozen of them. And I said, okay, example one is shut your ears so you can't blink. Yes, And just right. belt out a song. So, of course, they belt out a song and they're not hearing each other. It's chaotic. It's cacophony, right? And everyone gets nervous who's hearing it and all this stuff. Okay, that's, that's example one. Example two is I just have them sing the same note the same way and as best they can. I mean, there's overtones, so it's, you know, it is kind of nice. But they just go, ah, you know, on and on and on until it's completely boring because there's no change, right? So it's, it would be the example of rigidity. Rigidity. Yeah. And in that particular case, there's linkage without differentiation, right? So then I go, okay, and I didn't know how to handle this next part. So, because I'd never done this before. So I said, okay, get together and sing something. So I step away and they're all in this little circle, the dozen of them. And I'm talking to the, the, the crowd, you know, the workshop people or whatever it was, the evening talk people in the audience. And I said, well, Self-organization is a natural emergent property of complex systems. And we saw complex systems has these three traits where, you know, it's open to influences from outside of itself, like this choir or like a cloud. It's capable of being chaotic, like water molecules and air molecules in a cloud. Um, and the most important uh, characteristic is it's nonlinear, meaning a small input at one point in time leads to relatively large outputs outcomes right that are hard to predict that's not linear so i said so you know a cloud is a self-organizing emergent complex system and and so is this choir let's see what they do well they get together they hadn't sung together but they get together and they sing amazing grace they sing amazing grace which i found out later uh first of all in about 75 percent of the time that I would do this then regularly in workshops, people would choose Amazing Grace when it was in North America. Interesting. And in the Western canon of songs, I found out in reading Dan Levelton's great book, This Is Your Brain on Music, the Amazing Grace is the most harmonic song in the Western canon. Oh, wow. But it comes up naturally. Mm -hmm. They, You just say, sing together after they've done the two examples. So the, my point is that, interestingly, optimal self-organization with this faces quality uh, quality that's in the window basically happens naturally all we need to do is help people get the blockages to linkage and differentiation out of the way we don't need to make integration happen and this was my experience both <coughs> as an individual but also as a therapist that my job <coughs> excuse me my job was not to make people heal right. my job was to be you know, like on a journey with them, you know, mm -hmm. like, uh, like a Sherpa, maybe I was carrying a little bit of the baggage, but mm. we were on this together. And then if we did it right, if we could find the blockages, which is what mm -hmm. unresolved trauma is all about, I think, release that the natural growth, the natural healing, making whole comes from integration, that then you're releasing integration that way as a therapist, it's just like a joining that liberates the natural capacity for love, for living a life that's full of freedom, creativity, and exuberance. Um, 
And you don't have to make that stuff happen. You, you let that stuff happen. I had never thought about it as a, uh, almost a surrender into a more of a receptivity mm. that the blockages, I mean, it often as you know, I was a, clinician trained as a clinician i can often feel the way how hard i was working my first clinical supervisor he said you're working like a horsey and he'd just make fun of me for feeling <laughs> like i just had to yeah. you know try so hard versus as you're saying a kind of settling into and when i think of the harmony of the choir that's a felt experience that's yeah that's a beautiful we could talk about it all we want but there's something about well, hearing harmony yeah you hear it and you know what's so what brings a lot of tears to me and to pe I think people uh, who are both singing and listening, you know, is you realize that who we are is much bigger than these bodily selves. And I think in some ways that's, you know, your question about what do we do with racial um, uh, uh, issues, racism and social injustice? What do we do about the environment? These, I think, are all related to a fundamental problem in modern times of thinking of the self as separate and let's just name that like a solo self uh you know and when people think the self is only coming from your brain and your head or even just even from your skin encased body we get into trouble because it's excessive differentiation and the systems in which we live whether it's the bodily system uh, including our nervous system whether it's like you know, a family or, you know, a, a partnership like a romance or a school or, you know, a city or um, a state or a nation or a whole world. Basically, you're um, going to see a lot of chaos or rigidity in any of those systems if there's not a balance of differentiation and linkage. So, you know, um, I know it may sound simple, but I do think... Uh, and I'm trying not to be an optimist. I mean, I was just finishing um, my mom and Caroline are, are in this class on Dan Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, he hates optimists, you know. Oh, I didn't know that, really. I didn't. Well, if I'm, if I'm hearing the interpretation from my mom and Caroline, you know, that in the book, that book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, he's basically saying, Thinking Fast and Slow is what it's called. He's saying that an optimist, which I would consider actually myself to be, so it was really, sure. really heartening to hear what he said the, optimists tend to only look at the positive so they close themselves down hmm. to the potential negative things so they put people at risk um, oh i see you know hmm. so i would call myself then a realistic optimist oh good you know because yeah. <laughs> i don't <laughs> sure. want to get rid of my optimism i want to think about the possible good and yes. maybe be a, a realistic idealist optimist or something like that. Not be Pollyanna about it. Yeah, but not be Pollyanna. Exactly. So this is the risk of Pollyanna thing. Exactly, David. So anyway, what I just want to say is I do think with realism and idealism and maybe a bit of optimism. So please listen to this with a doubting mind, but mm. see if it works for you. I think the modern lie of the separate self, which has been going around for a long time, has created a way we live inside these bodies and with one another that's really unhealthy. And um, it's just, there's a much bigger story of what the self is. Um, and, and so, in a way, trauma, if you think about trauma in, in an individual's life, you know, whether it's abuse and neglect, just to start with that, those are assaults on integration. Yes. You know, either way, you've either been excessively differentiated in, in neglect, 
or excessively linked with sexual abuse or physical abuse or emotional abuse. So either way, you get an, a, a, an assault on integration. Um, and and with you, if you look at just, uh, there's an incredible, um, it's probably from Krishnamurti, but I saw it written on a, on a wall in Romania when I was teaching there a, a bit ago. Uh, and the, the paraphrase, I think it was from Krishnamurti, said, the ability to adapt to a sick society is not a sign of mental health. Mm. And then I went, mm. oh my God, that mm. like says everything because if culture, modern culture is telling us about the lie of a separate self, and then we just try to take in that lie and say, okay, well, let's see. Um, all right. I'm just in my body. Okay, fine, fine. Then what am I supposed to do? Oh, I'm supposed to get stuff. Right. And I'm supposed to get, you know, wealthy or powerful or something like that. So let me get, you know, 100 units of stuff. I don't feel good. I get a thousand units of stuff. I still don't feel good. I say, well, the reason you don't feel good, David or Dan, you know, is because you don't have enough stuff. So I try to get 10,000 units of stuff and then 100,000 units of stuff. And before you know it, I'm on this hedonic treadmill that yes. I don't even know I'm on. And then the problem with that kind of consumption is we're going to consume our way into an incredible assault on biodiversity. We're going to have monocrops that are basically destroying the, the health of the soil. And in so many ways, we're going to destroy life on Earth. So all of that, you could say, might come. And I'm trying to say this very aware that I have a tendency to try to, you know, be optimistic. But I think we as a humanity could identify a fundamental cause of all these pandemics, you know, the way we're not collaborating to deal with the viral pandemic, the way we have racism and social injustice, the way we have environmental destruction, and even a fourth pandemic of the polarization you see across these political divides, in some ways, they may all be related to this fifth pandemic of the lie of the solo self. And mm -hmm. if that's true, then the pathway for the other four pandemics is to deal with the fifth, is to say, okay, how do we help people cultivate inner resilience to become more integrated inside their bodies? And then you go, well, then how do you live in relationship to people in your family where you realize you're larger than just a separate me? Um, and then, you know, we have this fun term of saying, well, what would your identity be if you're not just a me? You go, well, should we go all the way to we? And I was giving these lectures, me to we, you know, mm -hmm. and there's a great group actually in Toronto, you know, called me to we for adolescents and, and so oh, no way. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great group. Um, and in fact, they just had me write this, um, the postscript to their, this beautiful book they just came out with. And what I said was to them, and they were very open to it, but, but when I was giving these lectures, me to we, one of my students, we have an online program, but she was at this live talk I was giving. She came up to me, she goes, you know, I'm so mad at you. I said, well, what are you mad about? She goes, you're giving a talk called Me to We. I said, yeah. She goes, well, that may rhyme, but it's really a hypocritical thing you're saying. I said, well, tell me more about that, you know? Yeah. And she says, well, you've taught us that differentiation is really important and linkage. I said, right. She goes, well, aren't I supposed to, like, know what happened to my body, like if I was abused or not? And not just deny that. I said, yeah. Oh, I see. She goes, aren't I supposed to like take care of my body and sleep my mm -hmm. body? I said, yeah. And feed your body well, yeah. And exercise your body. I said, yeah. She goes, well, that's all me. I said, absolutely. She goes, well, the title of your talk, Me to We, 
-hmm. in grammar implies get rid of me and become a we. I said, oh my God, you're right. And she goes, well, come up with something else. I said, okay, well, how about not only me, but in addition, blend in we? She goes, that doesn't rhyme at all. So I looked at her, I said, okay, then the way you would integrate me and we, you'd have to keep both. Because when you integrate, when you link, you're not losing the differentiated part. So I said, how about if we do me plus we equals uh, we, M-W-E? And she goes, that's it. And so I said, okay, that's what we're going to do. And so, so we is the idea that, you know, we in this culture could say, know what you've been through. If you've been traumatized, where assaults on integration have remained in your nervous system, in that body you're born into that you get about 100 years to live in, work it, you know, go to David and get work, you know, to really use mindfulness to help integrate that which wasn't integrated. That's what resolving trauma is all about, I think. Yeah. And Bessel Vanderkoek and I were teaching the other day, and, you know, this is what I said to him, and he says, oh, say more about that integration of memory stuff, which he wasn't familiar with. So, you know, I was talking about these ways you can integrate memory and things. It was kind of a very fun um, conversation to have. But but that's the for the individual to find their way. But then as as people on this planet, we need to realize that we are both embodied and we are relational, not or, and. Mm-hmm. So then you go, well, the relational part is the we part. So then we are in families. We are in neighborhoods and communities. We are in, you know, systems of, you know, with artificial but meaningful, you know, national boundaries. We are in an ecosystem that extends around this whole biosphere called Earth. So then you say, okay, so how are we going to really live as we? And, you know, that's what this, this book I just finished yesterday, you know, is all about, oh, wow. called Intraconnected. It's like, you know, how do you actually take the trauma of a modern lie, which it violates something called epistemic trust, which is, you know, if the world around us, the culture, the, the energy and information flow that's embedded within culture is lying to us, that the self is separate, and then we're trying to all live with it in a way it's like a cultural trauma because it's a cultural impairment to integration so you say okay well then let's let's work this let's not Mm -hmm. point fingers and say these people are to blame or they're to blame or those are dummies or those are the mean guy let's all get together and say okay you know the way we've done this to this point is not working so let's collectively support one another you know and move in this new direction. So I, I'm really energized about it. And, um, you know, it was, it's funny because I wrote this book. Um, the first version of it was like a, um, it was like a 300 page, some people call it a poem. It was a fictional, oh, wow. it was a fictional story about a character named Sam. And you watch Sam grow from preconception to the end of Sam's life. And it was all kind of poetic. A lot of it was rhyming. Anyway, it just sort of happened that way and it was all about these topics. I turned it in and my publisher rejected it um, and said, yeah, but you know, uh, y- you have a contract to write this other book. So I debated whether just to end my contract, but then I decided, okay, I'll write another book. So I wrote a regular conceptual book 
um, that matches all the entries match the verse book. Oh, wow. So now oh, you've got these great. two books, one of which I think I'll continually write for the rest of my life is the synergy. Yeah. And we, you know, verse book, it's like a voyage lifespan voyage book. But the other one is a lifespan journey that you take this more conceptual called intraconnected. So now I've got these two books that are done and it's, uh, it'll be really interesting because it's kind of like you yourself as the reader have an opportunity in both books really to use either for the, the interconnected book, like a deep dive into the concepts mm-hmm. that kind of can, can help you see the integrative path that we might move toward. But then if you like it, cause a lot of people don't like poetry and, and I've never written poetry before. I wouldn't even call it poetry, but my poet friends call it poetry, but I don't want to call it that. I just call <laughs> it a verse voyage or whatever free verse voyage, but you can go into that one. And that one mm-hmm. kind of, you know, when pe- the people who have liked it, cause not everybody's liked it, but the people who have liked it, they get into it and it's, they, they, it's like going on a trip, you know, where their their whole mind is like dismantled through the the, the rhyming and stuff, so it'll be really interesting oh. when people if people decide to read one or the other or both, because uh, by the end of it, the idea is to give you a direct experiential immersion in we. That's great. So you feel I love it. That you know? <laughs> I love that you're a poet. It makes me really happy to think of your, the poet part of you that gets to also write. You know, it actually yeah. makes me think of John O'Donohue. And- yeah. Uh, well, I, he, he certainly has been always, you know, since we've been friends, an, an, immer- uh, an inspiration in my life. But I, you know, I, um, I refer to him a, a number of times in the book, and I think he would have been laughing a lot at, uh, yeah. at, the, at, yeah. at trying to bring these two you know, two ways of experience, you know, direct experience in the rhyming stuff and then more conceptual, you know, stuff that's also direct in a different kind of way. He was an embodiment. I, some of the interviews with him and his voice, that yeah. amazing accent. And- well, you know, David, we have on our website, and I was so happy that we had it recorded, um, John O'Donohue, John Kabat-Zinn, the wonderful Diane Ackerman and myself did a three-day conference no way. called Mind and Moment. And oh, we, we have it up on our website. And so oh, if you want to see John O'Donohue in his absolute top form, oh, wow. um, it, 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 uh, it, it was amazing. And um, uh, I just thank the, the, the spirits that we, we decided to have a, a a videographer. He was a guy who used to use Microsoft. Oh, you it. Yeah, who was a um, a grandpa who just was mm-hmm. like getting to know me because he wanted to help his granddaughter, and uh, and he said, "Can I videotape your stuff?" I said, "Sure, any anything you want to videotape, fine." So he would just sit there in the front with his, and he did a great job. You know, he's a very, he's a, oh, he's a so uh, technology guy, so he yeah. did a great job. Um, uh, John, and, and you see these Johns. John was also the name of the videographer. So uh, anyway, it's great. But that if you want to get to know John I'll O'Donohue um, in that setting of mindfulness from you know Cap- John Kabat-Zinn's point of view, John O'Donohue's point of view, Diane Ackerman's point of view, and I had a couple of things to say too. And, and it's just, uh, <laughs> it's really, it was a fun, it was just this fun gathering. And it was actually at the right at the beginning. It was June, it was like, I did my first mindfulness meditation ever, like in, uh, in, uh, January. Then I went from that place in Barry, Massachusetts yeah, I remember to, the reading, yeah. to, um, 
like the next week I went to San Francisco, not San Francisco, but just north of Big Sur, I forgot what it's called, uh, Mount Madonna, and John Kabat-Zinn, who got a hoarse voice who couldn't do it, but that we, I learned MBSR the next week, right? Yeah. So that's two yeah. weeks. And then right after that, I drive John Kabat-Zinn to San Francisco with his hoarse voice. You'll see he's got this hoarse voice. And yeah. then then we meet up with Diane and John O'Donohue. So wow. within within like a three-week period, I did my first meditation retreat ever, learned MBSR, and then was teaching with John, John, and Diane. I can't so wait it was to watch great, it. crazy. We all we were all a lot younger in those days. So, <laughs> right, you know. Right, anyway, right. it's a it's it's a fun. Um, it was one of those fun moments in life, you know, that you'll see a lot of love there. You know, oh, I'm I'm glad to watch it. Yeah. Well, is there any last things? I mean, I have a dozen other questions, but um, well, any have, last no, any you questions share? you have? I mean, I, you're. I think what you're doing, David, is so important to think deeply about mindfulness and think deeply about trauma, and then bringing those worlds together. Um, you know, I think that's just such important work to do in the world. And I think people can learn a lot from you. And I think your book is fantastic. And I, I do think that we need to make sure we take care of each other because, you know, the pandemic, if it's taught us anything is that we need each other and it's, and it's basically, it's better together, you know, and together isn't just you know, people, you know, it's with all people across everything you might divide us in nationality, beliefs, the, the false thing we call race, which are really population variations, you know, and also other species. You know, I mean, I should I, I can get up my phone here and I could just show you. But I went on a hike yesterday. I, I, I had to listen to this, you know, whatever, long 300 page dissertation of someone who was doing something on interpersonal neurobiology and um the teachings of christ it was and just getting wow. a phd on it yeah and so anyway i had to read this and i was late because i was doing my book blah 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 so i went for this long hike um but on the hike i met this uh, uh, a um newt who was climbing up this hillside and i took this incredible video of him uh, people won't be able to see but i'll just show it to you because you got to see this newt um so i'm taking this video of this newt Right. And I'm thinking this is such a classic Western thing to do. Here you can see him. Um, So there's the newt. You see him? So I love this newt. And he's climbing out of the creek and he's climbing (laughs) up, up, up this hill. And I go, oh, well, newts should be in the creek. I should lift him up and help him and put him back in the water. And then then I go, oh, that's such a colonialist thing to do, Dan. (laughs) You know, he knows what he's doing. You don't know. Just. You can take a video of him because it doesn't bother him, but you're not going to pick him up and put him back in the creek. That's such a maybe white male colonialist thing to say, I know better than this newt, right? Right. So it really taught me. I said, oh, I took a deep breath Hmm. and I said, that's really interesting. You know, I don't know if he's going to make it. I don't know why he's climbing, you know, dozens of feet away from the creek. Like, is he, is she going to lay eggs or why? What? And she keeps on sliding back. But, you know, nature finds her way its way to self-organize as it needs to if we get out of the way so it was an incredible moment where i didn't touch her i just really had gratitude for her um and that's i think the way we can come to life is you know not interfere and and let the natural integrative love really and connection and awareness just be there and i i i thank you for all the ways you're helping us do that thanks dan I really appreciate the way that this has been a personal journey for you, but you also, you really go wide 
the way that you'll talk about systems. I remember I was prepping and watched you do, a, uh, it was an environmental conference on, on climate change. Oh, yeah. And the way you're talking about the relationship between mind, me, we, bodies, nervous systems, trauma, and climate, and just to see you, you know, bring them all together. So thank you for continuing to connect those dots of and go wide and um just thank you for your your work and looking forward to seeing where you go oh you're welcome dave well thank you it's a it's an absolute honor to be here with you and uh, let's do it again sometime yeah i love that yeah take care beautiful take care That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Dan for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about trauma sensitive mindfulness work, you can visit my website at davidtrelevin.com. We have a free webinar there on principles of trauma sensitive mindfulness, which we've been getting some good feedback on. And you can also sign up for our newsletter where you'll receive notifications about future podcasts and also ongoing resources that we'll be sending out. Thanks again for listening and talk to you again soon.